Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, welcome back for another round. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host from Westminster Theological Center in the UK, along with Matt Bates from Quincy University in Illinois, Drew Johnson at the King's College in New York City, Aaron Heim at Denver Seminary, and Chris Tilling, who allegedly works at St. Melitus, but who is constantly trying to, quote, break into the modeling industry, and has asked specifically if any of our listeners have any good contacts for him. Uh, I'm not going to comment on whether or not I think that's a good good route for him to um, to go down, but um, I'll just leave that with you. That was a joke, by the way. I feel like I have to, I have to preface that after the Irvine Shiplatsum April Fool's episode. Anyway, special thanks to Ed Hackey for all his amazing support and help with production, and to Tommy Molman for his marketing and media wizardry. In this episode, we have a brief interview with Sophia Bachman, um, Michelle Bachman's daughter, who uh, Drew Johnson interviews, and then that leads into an interview that uh, Drew does with Matthias Henze. Okay, so we're here with Sophia. Um, Sophia, tell us first and foremost, I think we're all most interested to know, uh, what is it like to have a mother who's running for president of the United States? Well, uh, it's the same feeling of when you're 17 and just trying to grow up. It's what are you doing with your life? What's going on? What is true and false? Um, it was, what's funny, it was super normal. Like she was just always kind of a big deal. So it's just that more people knew about her. Uh, and that was it. Excellent. So uh, changing the topic ever so slightly. Um, if you were gonna, going to explain to somebody, like somebody became a Christian, started reading the New Testament for the first time, and, and they run into things like uh, Jesus is called a rabbi, right? And he's at a synagogue uh, mm-hmm. teaching and explaining things, and he's casting out demons. Uh, where would you point them to uh, where these things come from? Because in the New Testament, they just presume you know these things. So yeah. where do these things come from? Well, you're talking about more of like the Jewishness of the New Testament. And I think that's interesting because you see that there is um, a stray uh, from like Old to New Testament where there's just kind of a lost period for most evangelicals. This is my background, of course. And so you think about like, okay, well, there's a lot more here to the story. And so um, there are like, you know, like some people believe there are missing like books of the Bible even, um, you know, whether you're in a Catholic tradition or again, um, like the Maccabees, for instance. And so... Um, um, those are historical documents that are important to understand context. Um, but it's also just good to know, I, I, I see, it was different for me because I grew up in a very like, Christian environment where we did talk about this context. So it wasn't unusual for me. So I did know about it. Um, but for someone new, I would probably point them, I mean, this sounds silly, but like just to like basic articles um, about it. I hate saying this, but Wikipedia is actually awesome. Um, just even like for a general background knowledge. Um, but of course, nothing's better than source material. So someone who actually does um, hold these beliefs to be true. Um, I, I was blessed to have Jewish friends growing up, so we usually made fun of them a lot, the hats. Um, but no, we, like, we, we just asked some questions. Um, Catholic friends too. I sound so diverse right now, don't I? <laughs> so did your Jewish and Catholic friends actually know about 
where where demons came from? Uh, did, did they think they were Old Testament things or synagogues, rabbis, those kind of things? The demon question is interesting. I actually don't know that that was ever a big deal. I think it was just kind of always there. Um, because, again, it's the idea of the spirit, right? And that there are evil spirits. I never thought that they weren't in the Old Testament. Um, but, wow, do I not know the Bible now? Thank you very much, Sophia, for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Anyone who has read sequentially through the Bible has a bit of a shock when they arrive at the New Testament Gospels. New ideas and creatures populate the landscape of ancient Israel. Rabbis and synagogues somehow snuck into the center of Jewish life from somewhere off stage. So too did demons and resurrection of the dead. Though some would argue that we get glimpses of these in the Hebrew Bible, where did these full-figured notions about the spirit realm and the afterlife come from? among other ideas. Well, today we're talking to Professor Matthias Henze about his popular book, Mind the Gap, How the Jewish Writings Between the Old and the New Testament Help Us to Understand Jesus by Fortress Press 2017. In this book for lay people, Henze walks through the various ideas that developed in the Jewish pseudepigrapha and the literature of Hellenistic Judaism more broadly. He shows the average reader of scripture the roots of the Judaism that Jesus and his disciples understood and notes that we can't fully appreciate that form of Judaism by reading the Old Testament alone. Matthias Hinza is the Watt J. and Lily G. Jackson Chair in Biblical Studies at Rice University, and that's in Houston, Texas. His recent books include a monograph on 2nd Baruch titled Jewish Apocalypticism in the Late First Century Israel by Mord Zebeck and an edited volume called A Companion to Biblical Interpretation in Early Judaism by Erdmans. He's also written over 40 scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as numerous encyclopedia entries. And currently he's working on a critical commentary on Second Baruch with de Gruyter. Dr. Henze earned uh, an MDiv from the University of Heidelberg in Germany, an MA from Harvard University in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and he also earned his PhD from Harvard University in that same department. Welcome, Matthias, to OnScript. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, maybe we could begin this discussion with um, uh, a description for those in our audience that aren't familiar with Hellenistic Judaism and the, and the literature that was generated in that period. Maybe just a general description of the kinds of literature that we're encountering in this gap period that you identify. Uh, and then how did you first get interested in this period? Right. So these are two very different questions. Um, I got, where do you want me to start? With the first or second question? With the description of the material, the personal stuff? Yeah, let's go ahead and begin with the, what, what's the, the material? And then why do you personally find it interesting? Okay, so it seems to me that most people who study the Bible are very much focused on the canon. Uh, from a Christian perspective, of course, there's the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Jews who study the Bible study the Hebrew Bible, and then they sort of jump to rabbinic literature. And both on the Christian and the Jewish side, there's a real danger that you overlook the fact that in between the Old and the New Testament, or on the Jewish side, I would make the exact same argument, in between the Hebrew Bible and the earliest rabbinic literature, there's a sizable gap. There are four to 500 years, depending on how you date these books, of um, a very rich corpus of Jewish literature um, that is simply overlooked. And when I say overlooked, I mean that if you go to a seminary, to any divinity school, 
even in any university, and you get a formal education in biblical literature, um, there is somewhat the implied notion that the Bible is all we have from this period. That's all the literature there is, A, and B, that it's fine to study this literature out of context, as it were, particularly when it comes to the New Testament. And so it seems to me that what was needed was a book that explained what kind of literature there is in addition to the biblical texts. Not meant to be um, a criticism of canonical decisions. I'm not trying to take away the Bible, take away the canon. Um, but what I am saying is that the writings that are preserved in the Bible is not all we have. There is more, and I think it behooves us to cast our net wide and read beyond the biblical texts themselves. Yeah, and that, so how did that lead to you personally becoming interested uh, in these? Because you studied in ancient Near East uh, division at Harvard, and so there's lots of things to be interested and distracted by. So how did you home in on this? Right. So there, I think I need to tell you a little bit about my personal background. Um, I spent the first half of my life in Germany, was born and raised there, and um, I always had an interest in Judaism. Um, so growing up in high school, I contacted the local synagogue, even though I myself am not Jewish, I'm Christian, Lutheran, um, and studied modern Hebrew and then spent my junior year in college at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So I always had an interest in Jewish-Christian dialogue. And then I studied Protestant theology in Germany, and then, as you say, went to Harvard and, and uh, wanted to sort of supplement my education that I had received from the University of Heidelberg. Um, and did that, um, but again had an interest in um, Judaism, the beginnings of Judaism, of rabbinic Judaism, and how it relates to the birth of Christianity. And that's why I focused on what we call the Second Temple Period and its literature. Um, I also studied Akkadian Ugaritic, so I have sort of a, an interest in ancient Near Eastern studies as well. But for my scholarly work, I focus much more on the Second Temple literature. So I was at Harvard in the 1990s when research on the Dead Sea Scrolls was really picking up um, speed. And so I took a class there and was blown away by the kind of literature um, that the people at Qumran read. And then also started to develop an interest in the so-called Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. And quickly found out that there's a wide field there of texts on which not so much work had been done. And I firmly believe that once we integrate this with biblical studies, it really opens up many, many doors for uh, further insights and, and research. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you write in your introduction that you realized that you had mistaken ideas about the Old Testament when you started looking for characters and ideas in the, in the New Testament uh, that you found in the New Testament back in the Old Testament. And so you say, quote, um, I was looking for passages about synagogues and rabbis and Pharisees that simply don't exist. And then you go on to say, the Old Testament cannot explain the Jewish world of Jesus. Now, can you explain what you mean by that last sentence? Because I think a lot of people, that will catch them off guard. Right. Yes, absolutely. So what happened to me was that I was beginning to study the New Testament in earnest, and I was struck by the many Jewish elements that there are in the New Testament. Thinking of Paul, but I'm also, of course, thinking of the Gospels, that uh, in which Jesus is described as... Um, being firmly embedded in the Judaism of his time. He's a very active uh, participant in the debates. 
Um, and many of the issues that are mentioned are not fully explained, right? We read of Pharisees, uh, Jesus called a rabbi, we read of synagogues, um, but I felt I was ill-prepared to understand what exactly it is that the evangelists were just taking for granted. And so, not quite knowing where to turn, I had always been under the impression, and I think this is true of many Christians today, that when we turn to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, we will find an explanation of the Jewish world that is simply taken for granted in the New Testament. And the truth of the matter is that it doesn't work that way. So if the evangelists speak of synagogues, there are no synagogues in the Old Testament. If there are rabbis in the New Testament, there are no rabbis in the Old Testament. It's a long list of things that are simply taken for granted in the New that cannot be explained by the Old Testament. Now, often when I give talks about Mind the Gap, this is often how I begin. And then people will typically say, hmm, this is true, how can this be? Can you explain it? And the very simple explanation is that Judaism developed rapidly in these gap years between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And by development, I mean that new questions were asked, new kinds of literature were written, and also new Jewish institu institutions came into being, such as the synagogue and such as the um, rabbis. And so, since the Bible glosses over those 400 or 500 years, there's really no text in the Bible that explains the origin and earliest development of all of these questions and institutions. By the time we hit the New Testament, all of these things are well established, are part of Judaism, so that the New Testament authors don't feel the need to explain any of this. They just assume that we know what's going on when in fact we often don't. Yeah, that's great. And I think you're, uh, I should be mindful of the, the audience here that your phrase, mind the gap, is a play on the, uh, the British um, the subway station. Uh, but um, but indeed, you, you say later in the book, uh, there is no gap in the history, religion, and literature of ancient Israel. The, the gap is actually a phenomenon of the Protestant Bible that you're referring to. So you want to be very careful to say uh, you're not actually talking about a real gap, but a perceived gap. So I think that's an excellent point you're making. Um, really what I'm doing in the book is I try to translate what scholars have been working on for about 50 or so years when scholars develop really an interest in these gap years and try to translate it into a language that is accessible to the non-specialists. And so the non-specialists, by and large, will only read biblical texts, and for them, the gap is real. And so I'm just bringing to the attention something that viscerally they had known for a long time. But when I then go back to my scholarly friends and say I'm writing about the gap years, um, they will be very unhappy and they will say, well, the very point of our research is to show that there is no gap. The gap is just the result of the production of the Bible. And so that's why I have this page in there where I say the gap is a construct. There's no real gap in ancient Judaism. Jews did not stop to write or read produce literature. Yeah, I want to go back to that point you, you made prior that there's new types of literature emerging in this period. Um, and you say that some of that literature is actually modeled after the books, the biblical books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call. Um, what would you say, if you know, if you were just a broad brushstroke, what would you say are the prominent qualitative differences between the literature during this period of Hellenistic Judaism and the biblical literature of the Hebrew Bible? What would be defining features? Yes. 
So I think there's a lot of continuity. I'm not saying that the Judaism of the Second Temple period is radically different from Israel during the biblical period. But it is also true that it has changed significantly, and many of these changes are expressed in the literature. So, for example, questions about the end time uh, become much more prominent, and I talk about this in the book as well. Very basic questions of what happens to you when you die. Is there something after death? Is a topic that most of my readers will take for granted is addressed in the Hebrew Bible, whereas in fact it is not. And often when I talk about issues such as resurrection, I like to read the Psalms that talk a lot about death, but they stop short of talking about what happens after. So that's one example. People wanted to know. Um, the book of Genesis talks about a definitive beginning of time and a definitive beginning of the world. Well, is there also a definitive end? Are we headed in a certain direction? Um, questions of the origin of evil. Uh, why are we prone to take the wrong turn whenever we're offered the opportunity, right? Where is this coming from? What is it within us? Um, questions about calendar, uh, calendrical disputes. What is the correct calendar? Um, the prominence of scripture and scriptural interpretation, the formation of communities of faith, or um, the early synagogues, that are less focused on the temple in Jerusalem and more concerned with the interpretation of the word of God, which now becomes increasingly a written word of God rather than an, an oral word between God and the prophet, right? These are all fairly new phenomena that are expressed in these texts. Yeah, if I, I go back to one thing you pointed out, I think it's the thing that always catches Christians off guard, especially if you talk to a Dead Sea Scroll scholar, uh, scholar, they're always going to bring up this issue of calendars. Uh, they know more about calendars than anybody else, it seems. So like, that's a good example of something that I don't think Christians at all think about the metaphysical nature of a calendar and are quite surprised why that's such a big issue for these people. So maybe you could just give us a word or two on why that's the case. <laughs> yes, so uh, most scholars believe that the people who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls went into the self-imposed exile at this place we call Qumran on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea because of disputes with the Jews who were running the temple in Jerusalem over the calendar. That was certainly not the only issue, but it was one of the central issues. If the Torah stipulates that you need to keep certain holidays on certain days and that you need to perform certain ritual religious acts on certain days, and if you're following the wrong calendar, you are in violation of these commandments. Um, so I agree with you that most, for most Christians, this will not be a huge issue. But then I tell them, okay, let's celebrate Christmas tomorrow and Easter the week thereafter. Why not? Let's just lump it all together. And then, of course, the response will be, well, you can't do that. That's just not right. So just as much as there is sort of a baffled non-understanding why this is such an issue, once you confront them and say, all right, well, if it's a non-issue, I suggest that we move Christmas to midsummer. It's nicer. And then they will immediately say, no, 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 you can't do this. So I think viscerally, again, this is like deep-seated, right, that we all agree on the same calendar. It's just not on our map that there could be multiple calendars. Right. 
Um, at one point, you uh, argue that the interpretation of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels has to change in light of what we've found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And near the end of the book, uh, you argue that Jesus could have been reading from across a very large collection of non-canonical texts, or at least would have had familiarity with these. Now, we're straying into what is a personal interest of my current research, so I'm just tapping your brain here. That's good. Yes, right, right, right. But uh, what do you make of this kind of in the big picture? What do you make of the deafening silence of the New Tef Testament authors uh, towards this rich literary Hellenistic tradition of literature that surrounded them? And it's a tradition which they surely were familiar with uh, at some level. And I guess I wonder, is their silence towards centuries of literature a critique ultimately? And, and of course, they're not entirely silenced. There are some hints and allusions and one quotation at least, but... In, in Jude, right, Jude alludes to the Enochic material, yes, right. So I think uh, that's a great question, and I'm sometimes being asked, how can you be so certain that these texts that you talk about, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Apocryphon Pseudobigrapher, really did play the role uh, that you claim they did, right? Um, I tell you another thing before I answer your question. Um, I had um, the title, Mind the Gap, at the very beginning. I thought about this, that this is what I wanted to call the book. And then I changed my mind. And in fact, while I was writing the book, I was operating under the assumption that I had a different title altogether. Namely, What Did Jesus Read? Question mark. And then the the publisher, Fortress, decided against that title because they liked, I think, Mind the Gap. They thought it was more catchy. But um, I, I think um, what I was trying to bring across is that, and I sometimes say this half-jokingly to my audiences, if you could travel in a time machine and you ask Jesus, what did you read last night before you went to bed, right? Before you fell asleep. Chances are that Jesus or any intellectual of the time, any rabbinic authority, would give you the title of a book that you don't even know existed. And the simple point I'm trying to make there is that the literature that was in circulation in the first century in Israel was much, much, much broader than the Bible would lead us to assume. So to answer your question, I'm not making any claims in the book that any New Testament authors, uh, were, any of them, was familiar with um, any particular apocryphal or pseudepigraphic book. So I'm not making the case for a one-on-one -on -one literary dependence of the New Testament on this literature, but rather the case I'm making is a broader one, namely that these books inform our understanding of the religious environment. They inform our understanding of the origins of demons, of the beliefs in the resurrection, of the many, many beliefs there were in a messianic figure, of what would happen at the end time, and on and on it goes. So I cannot and do not want to prove that any particular text was read by any particular author of the New Testament. However, my claim is that these texts inform us in a very rich way of the general religious environment. And going back to the issue of their silence, do you, do you see that as all at all as a snub or a critique? Uh, or do you think they're taking some of those ideas and saying we want to push them in a different direction? Probably the latter. I think that what uh, characterizes Second Temple Judaism, which includes the uh, time of Jesus, of course, 
um, is a variety of viewpoints, a, a large variety of um, opinions on just about any matter. And even if you read the Apocrypha Pseudepigrapha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they will hardly ever refer to other apocryphal or pseudepigraphic writings. That's just not how these authors operate, right? They will be very critical of each other, extremely critical, but that critique hardly ever takes the form of a direct citation of another text. So I'm not so concerned that these texts are not quoted verbatim. Um, I think they're definitely there under the surface. And um, the New Testament authors just assume that we know this stuff and then they can take it in whatever direction they want to run with mm, it. Yeah, that's very helpful. Okay, well, I have a few questions from a speed round. So um, you only get um, a sentence or two to answer. So okay, we're going to good. keep it crisp and clear unless you have to expound. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's begin with this first question. Have you ever thought about having your book for sale at The Gap? The, the, uh, the outlet store. Uh, right, right, right. What a great idea. I have not, but I look into Just it. Just thinking right, right on the counter idea. there. Yeah, yes. mind the gap. Right, right, I, right. I should also Fantastic. point out um, when you say, you know, you had this other title in mind for the book, and it's one of the dirty secrets uh, when people ask you about the title of your book. Uh, they don't know that we, we actually don't have control over the t- <laughs> You know, the it's marketing so, department has so more true. control than anybody else. Um, yeah, I just mentioned this title in passing and said this used to be the title, but now I have a new one. And they said, okay, let's go back to the old one. And that was the end of the story. Yeah, I've had the exact same experience as well. Um, so for helping people think about this, maybe who are new to this literature or want to bring this into their own academic setting, uh, if you could offer a class on The Gap, um, what would you? What would be the required reading on your list for that course? Primary texts from uh, the gap years, the Jewish texts. Um, I hope people would have a basic introduction to the New Testament and then to juxtapose the two and be very specific in finding out how early Jewish literature can inform and in fact change our reading of the New Testament. Uh, that's great. And I think, uh, I think there's going to be a, a lot of listeners who are going to want me to ask the question of, uh, so what do you think of Jimmy Dunn, E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright's uh, work on this I topic? I think it's extremely helpful. I think it really changed the discourse in New Testament. I read these people all the time. Um, my emphasis is on the Jewish literature. That is to say, many New Testament authors say that Jesus was a Jew and allude to the Jewish background, but then don't do very much with it. They really don't engage early Jewish texts the way they would engage the New Testament. So a large reason why I wrote the book is to ask exactly the same questions that these, our forebearers, if you will, have um, introduced us to, which is extremely helpful, but to approach the question from the other side, namely from the Jewish side of things. Mm, Excellent. Okay, now this is going to be a hard question. I'll just warn you. Um, What do these four humans have in common? Georgia May Jagger, Lauren Hutton, Elijah Wood, and Madonna? Oh, that is a hard question. I don't know. Um, appeal to a general audience? I don't know. Being revolutionary? Uh, fresh ideas? They are revolutionary. Uh, They're all celebrities with a gap in their front. Oh, oh um, all right. Yeah, yep. Okay, onward and downward. Uh, if I were to have dinner at your house, what adult beverage would you serve me? Wine. Sorry. Any particular kind? That's okay. <laughs> red wine. French red wine is what I would serve you. French red wine. Yes. Okay. 
Um, instead of mind the gap, you, you want to take a guess at what they say in the New York train system? <laughs> Oi, what do they say? Uh, I forget. You have to help me out. Well, so we don't use, in, in, in American English, we don't use mind the British, as a, right, as right, a right, verb. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they say watch the gap. That's right. Watch the gap. Yeah. Watch, yeah. The, watch the gap. I, just briefly, my mother lives in Berlin. And so there they do translate this, and they use mind the gap, actually. She was delighted. Oh, really? Yeah, she doesn't speak like, much English, but she understood the phrase. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I did look up various language, linguistic translations of it, and some of them are very long, actually. Uh, so not nearly as catchy as mind the gap. Uh, okay, what's your funniest one-liner joke? One-liner joke? Oy, 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 I don't have one. I'm sorry. I recently team-taught a class on Jerusalem and went with a um, Jewish colleague uh, who was very, very good. And at the end of the class, one of my sons was in fact in the class. He came to us and he said, your colleague was fantastic. You, on the other hand, were yet again completely useless. I don't know. It's not really, it's not really a joke, but it's a story from home. And it's a one-liner that gets people. Yes, gets people. Let's see, um, at the SBL annual meeting, what do you most look forward to? I assume you go to SBL AAR most I years. I do, yes, all, all the time, yes. It really has become a second home for me um, because I go, I used to run the pseudepigrapher section there. I just stepped down because of time limits, but I do go to the pseudepigrapher, apocrypha. I have an interest in text criticism. I do, do go to the Dead Sea Scrolls units and these kind of things. It's a fabulous gathering of like-minded people. Yes, I, I used to um, I used to chair a session there as well, and I feel like when you get when you're chairing or on a committee, it's more like sla slave work. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and then you get off the committee and you feel freed, uh, free as a bird, right? That's true. Um, that's true. So, what do you and be honest here? What do you most dread uh, when you go there? Like maybe running into a particular person, or a conversation, or publisher meetings, or uh, what do I most dread? Yeah. I most dread going into editorial meetings with colleagues when I know that I haven't done what I was supposed to have done. Not that that would ever happen. No, I understand. No. Okay, final final question. This is going to be this is going to demand some acting skills on your part. I want you to choose one of these people in a scenario to do an impersonation of. Okay, so here's your three three scenarios: Emmanuel Tove delivering a toast at a wedding, uh, Eugene Boring ordering a double cheeseburger at McDonald's. Or John Levinson begging to get into his local gym, even though he's lost his membership card. <laughs> so I'm supposed to be doing an impersonation. An impersonation. I know all three very well. I, I figured you right. would. <laughs> yeah, I know. And they're all very dear friends. I'm very bad in impersonating this. Yeah. So I think, I don't know, I would pick Gene Boring, but he's rather reserved. So it's difficult to... So how would, he, how would he order a double cheeseburger at McDonald's? He wouldn't. He would never go into it. <laughs> when I go and visit with him, he lives in Fort Worth. We always go to a barbecue place, and he is ve he is very quiet and reserved. So I'm I'm sorry. I have to let you down on that one. That's okay. We tried. We tried. <laughs> we tried exactly. All right. Um, so back to some more serious questions. Um, you discussed evil spirits uh, of the Hebrew Bible, and you distinguish those from demons and unclean spirits in Hellenistic Judaism. And it's a very interesting conversation. Actually, I, I wasn't fully clued in on that. So you helped me uh, think through some of those issues. 
Um, but I was surprised a little bit that you didn't comment on the contrast between the role of demons and desire in the Hellenistic Jewish literature and, and how that works out in the New Testament. Uh, do you see those as continuous with each other, or do you see a contrast between those two? I, I, I do, yeah, it's a great question. So when I read the New Testament, it seems that uh, to me the, um, the evangelists used a terminology without drawing much of a distinction. Um, I focus here on the demons and unclean spirits, and uh, I focus on the Gospel of Mark because there I think they're particularly important. And I, I was trying to figure out whether there is a distinction, and I don't think there is. I think this the demonic world taken altogether representing a different uh, reality that is constantly all around us and that Jesus confronts. But I don't think it is the interest of Mark or of the other New Testament authors to further distinguish what exactly these um, demons do. It, the point is that they are easily put in their place, that there is no real confrontation, there's no real exorcism here, that it is enough for Jesus to simply show up and um, overcome them just by his presence. Yeah, I thought that was very helpful. Um, uh, the resurrection of the dead, that's a really big one here. So it's at best, it's a cryptic and seminal idea in the Hebrew Bible, but it's explored very openly in the uh, Hellenistic Jewish text. And I'm interested in what you think. Um, I, I thought of another option here from the Hebrew Bible, and that's the role of the metaphor of salvation. So in the Hebrew Bible, salvation is first physical, that you're actually rescued from imminent death. Uh, and, then it, and then it becomes a metaphor. That I, that's how I would see it rolling out in that direction. Where in the New Testament text, it seems to come in primarily as a metaphor. But then, but then in the kind of apocalyptic and eschatological uh, parts, it becomes physical. Uh, that you're going to be rescued from a second death, from the, uh, being cast into Gehenna at the end of time or after the judgment. So I wonder if you would see that as an example of something that is, uh, again, another cryptic yet seminal um, concept or conceptual scheme that provides uh, girth to what's going on in the New Testament. Yes, I think absolutely. Um, so what I try to do in the resurrection chapter is I try to argue that the origins of resurrection may go back to 8th century BCE prophetic texts where the language of resurrection is used metaphorically and then only at a much, much later point within the Hebrew Bible for the first time in, in Daniel 12, um, resurrection language is uh, used to describe the actual physical resurrection. That's one change. And the other change is that you move from the collective, all of Israel, to the individual, right? In the book of Daniel, it's the wise. And it's, that is how it is being used in the New Testament. Um, I'm a little reluctant to draw a simple linear line there, a little uh, a, a, a simple linear development. And I think there, I think your question is, is very well phrased, because what I don't want to say is that uh, resurrection is simply a matter of a metaphor that was misunderstood or that was willfully uh, turned into a literal belief when people were in dire straits. I think that's way too simplistic. So I think your observation that it's not simply from metaphor to an actual belief, but it's much more complex than that, I'm very sympathetic with. Hmm. Excellent. Good. I'm glad you're sympathetic with something I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. So uh, we had talked before we started recording that, you know, books like these can't cover everything and, and you're slicing and dicing lots of things off to the side. But I, I did wonder if, if you could include a chapter, maybe in a future edition, 
called uh, Jewish Views of Women versus the New Testament, or Gap Text verse of Views of Women. Um, what, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Women, unfortunately, in Second Temple literature, don't get a very good press, right? As a, um, I just read a couple of articles for a volume I'm editing on gender and modern gender studies, and it's, it's really difficult to find anything positive, I hate to say, in early Jewish literature, especially in wisdom literature. I'm thinking of Ben Sira and other writings. Uh, it's, it's dire. When we come to the New Testament, um, there are, of course, a number of women that play uh, significant roles, and they've been underappreciated, no doubt. I just uh, uh, had a seminar in which we read um, Matthew 1 and talked about the women, the four women from the Hebrew Bible that show up in Jesus's um, pedigree there. Um, but um, I, yeah, I would have to look into this and debate whether that's reason enough to say that the perception of women changes for the better in the New Testament, beyond the presence of women in the New Testament, whether there's a real change um, in, in attitude there. I try to stay in general away from contrasting the New Testament with the Jewish literature that's older than that, because that, to me, is a bit of a stereotypical perception, right? That there were all kinds of problems in Judaism, then Jesus came along with the New Testament, and all of a sudden things were better. So I've tried not to do this. Um, so I'm just thinking quickly on my feet here. If I were to write a chapter on women, how would it fit in with the concept of mind the gap? How do Second Temple texts help us understand what's happening in the New Testament? I would have to think about this. Um, but, but another topic that I was thinking about writing a fifth chapter, as it were, for the book, is that of the temple. Because of the, the temple in Second Temple period um, means something very different than it meant during the First Temple period. And there's certainly a great variety of viewpoints on the significance of the temple uh, or the lack thereof, right? We just talked about Qumran, the Dead Sea community uh, going into the wilderness. Um, and so it would be interesting to look at the different New Testament communities, the different authors in the New Testament, and how they relate to the temple and how that might help us understand how they portray the temple. Yeah, I, I've actually have, that would be, I, I wish that were in the book because uh, <laughs> that's a, a, a pet topic of mine. And I, um, in Luke's gospel, for instance, that was one that I kind of walked through Luke and Acts and just looked at the, the disposition towards the temple, positive or negative. And I was shocked at how positive it was and how temple-centric uh, Luke and, and Acts are. I mean, we know the, the, we know the Pentecost and other texts, but it's throughout from beginning to end. And at the same time, you have a guy who's, you know, at least 12 or maybe 50 miles to the east uh, or up the Jordan River who's saying, come get baptized for the repentance of sins, which is, you know, I'm trying to figure out how would people even make sense of some of these things. So, Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, given that, in the final chapter, uh, I appreciate the fact that you kind of turned this to really down-to-earth practical advice, um, and you give some advice that seems to have roots in discussions with churches and Christians of various sorts. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe you can just give a, a quick report of what kind of pushback are you getting from Christians when you kind of throw out this idea that we, we absolutely must learn about the Jewishness of Jesus in order to understand the Gospels? 
right, right. So when I was writing the book, um, I was giving talks on the various chapters in order to float the ideas and to see how people responded. And sometimes in the question answer period, people were critical. Um, and so I tried to incorporate the criticism um, into the chapters and then at the very end decided I needed to ask the so what question. Uh, why did I write this book? Everybody knows that Jesus was a Jew. Nothing controversial about this. What is it that you really want to bring across? So what were some of the criticisms? Um, some people asked me, we all know that Jesus is the son of God. Um, so why uh, do you bring us these obscure Jewish texts that aren't even in the Bible? So to me, that indicates either a lack of or an unwillingness to think about the origin of ideas in historical terms. Or there is the perpetual perception that Jesus set things right that were wrong in Judaism, right? There's a very um, emphasized desire to set Jesus apart and to use Second Temple Jewish text as the dark foil against which Jesus shines brightly, which is exactly the kind of argument I'm trying to dismantle. So in the epilogue, in the book, I try to anticipate some of the criticism. So the book has been out for half a year now. I continue to give talks on Mind the Gap. And a bit to my surprise, I've received very little pushback. Um, these critical questions that came at the end of the talks, did Jesus really know this literature? How can you, just as you asked me, how can you be so certain that these texts were as influential as you make them out to be? Um, there was very, very little pushback. And people have responded extremely favorably to the main argument of the book, namely that for us to be truly biblically literate, to get a really good understanding of the New Testament, we really have to read beyond the Bible. So people, rather than criticizing me or giving me pushback, uh, were intrigued and were quick to admit that they in fact knew very little of first century Judaism in ancient Israel. And that's why I have in the back of the book also some suggested further readings. They were very open and very eager, in fact, to read more. It seems, if I may say, that some of the criticism comes from our colleagues, professional exegetes, who are much more reluctant to change their ways rather than the so-called lay community, general Jews and Christians, who are very open and, and eager to discuss this idea. So just about a month ago, I did a three-evening series together with a rabbi here in Houston at a conservative temple where we talked for three evenings about Judaism at the time of Jesus, loosely based on Mind the Gap um, with this rabbi. And there were about 100 people in the room, mostly Jews, but quite a number of Christians as well who had come to the synagogue, Beth Yeshurun, a conservative synagogue in Houston. And we had a delightful conversation and the Christians were very intrigued and very open-minded, and I got very, very little pushback. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear. Um, okay, we have one final question on OnScript that we ask all of our guests, and it's, um, it's a meta question. Uh, and the question is this. What idea or assumption, um, we could say person or scholar, but that gets a little bit too vindictive. So I uh, will say, what idea or assumption in biblical studies would you like to see just go away? Go away. Yeah. Supersessionism. Super ah. That is the, supersessionism, the idea that 
Christianity is somehow better than Judaism. Embedded in that is an anti-Jewish or, if you will, anti-Semitic idea that has been the cancer of Christianity and unfortunately of much of biblical scholarship since Christians have been around, right? It came into being really towards the end of the first at the latest early in the second century has never gone fully away. So just a basic acknowledgement that we're in this together and uh, don't need to prove that we are somehow better than anyone else. I think that's the one idea. Well, Matthias Henze, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this book. Of all your monographs, we picked a popular book, and so we thank you that you took the time to talk about thank this. Thank you. Um, thank you. This has been Matthias Henze with his book, Mind the Gap, How Jewish Writings Between the Old and New Testament Help Us Understand Jesus with Fortress Press. You can pick it up for just a few bucks at your local book outlet. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, Drew. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.